This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberling. Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control, a podcast that has everything to do with digital transformation, including the strategy, people, process, and technology sides of change. This is episode number 91 of Trans- Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm the CEO of Third Stage Consulting. We're an independent consulting firm that helps clients throughout the world with their digital transformation journeys, and I'm your host today. And with me is my co-host, as always, uh, Kyler Cheatham. Uh, Kyler, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, as always. Absolutely. Thank you for being here. Again, this is Episode number 91, we've got a great show for you today. We're going to uh, cover some hot topics early on in the first segment. We're going to talk about a new book that was just released that you told me about, Kyler, that I was not aware of uh, until you told me, which was uh, a book called Future Ready, The Four Pathways to Digital Value. So we're going to talk about some of the uh, concepts that are covered in that book and how it pertains to uh, your digital transformation potentially. We're also going to talk about the shift to sustainable technology as well as app overloads. Um, So I'll be curious to hear more about those hot topics as well. So we'll cover that in the first segment. And then later in the show, after our hot topics, we're going to do a change management Q&A. We're going to talk about change management strategies to be aware of and and really give you some advice on how to think about change management as you think about your digital transformations for 2023 and beyond. Uh, Since we're officially in the fourth quarter of the calendar year, a lot of organizations are thinking about how they're going to kick off 2023 and how are they going to be successful in the new year and what are some of the landmines and pitfalls they might need to navigate. So we're going to talk about change management strategies for 2023 and beyond uh, in a Q&A sort of a format here later in the show. And then last but not least, we're going to, in keeping with this whole fall autumn theme that we have going here um, leading into the uh, new year coming up here in a few months, uh, we're also going to talk about something that's very topical in terms of uh, those that recognize or celebrate Halloween. Uh, we're going to talk about some scary stuff uh, in the third segment. We're going to uh, talk about the top 10 ERP failures of all time. But just like any good horror movie, there's going to be some resolution to that horror movie. Uh, we're going we're gonna to close it out with a follow-up to that, which is why digital transformations fail. So we're going to sort of paint for you the horror story of what some of the worst failures in history are. But then more importantly, after that, we'll talk about why digital transformations fail and what some of the root causes are and what you can do to avoid failure. Again, in keeping in line with the Halloween theme, but also in keeping in line with the theme of thinking about 2023 and beyond and planning for your digital strategy in the longer term. So uh, stay tuned for those segments later in the show. But before we get there, Kyler, what are some of these hot topics you have for us? Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's dive into this new book. And the the interesting part about this book is it's actually research-based from um, Sloan School of Business at MIT released their findings around creating digital value within a business. And they kind of carved out four pathways that I wanted to take you through and discuss. So just to give you some background on what the research features, 
it studies um, just about 1,300 global firms and found that only 22% are quote-unquote future ready and have gone through a digital business transformation, as they call it, and developed capabilities to help them innovate for future success. Um, and the the definition of success, because that can be kind of gray when it comes to a digital transformation, but their data points were um, the innovation, the engagement, satisfying customers, and reducing costs as well. So those were kind of the, the points there. So let's kind of dive into the research for this study, and I'm going to spend a little bit more time than we typically spend on a hot topic on these, because I think it's very relevant. So the first pathway is digitize first and then worry about customer experience later. So they call this the industrialization um, method. So they start off kind of with this brute force process that goes through digitizing everything, everything in the business before they actually bring it to the customer facing experience. Um, they focus on internal processes, making sure that they radically simplify things like operations, efficiencies, those types of things. Uh, what the researchers caution with this method is a lot of times it seems to blow up budgets. So they spend so much money on those internal processes that they never actually reach that kind of third stage or even a second phase of digital transformation because they've spent so much time and money and resources. There's a fatigue throughout the organization and just overall dollars spent isn't maximized. So that's the first pathway. Um, the second pathway is they worry about customers first and then digitize. So these are typically businesses that their customer service is really underperforming and is seen as an or urgent or forced transformation that we kind of talked about before or that we discuss. Um, really, their competitors are bearing down on them. This pathway really has two phases. It's the, the customer's voice inside the organization followed by building digital platforms. Um, so this it's kind of a two-pronged approach. What they caution, again, as far as what the research has found is teams from all over may innovate using these digital technologies, better data, new ways of working and engaging and delighting customers. But sometimes all of this innovation doesn't address the root cause or the underlying complexities of the product offering and systems. Um, and focuses too much energy on that customer experience behind instead of kind of mining what the issue is and why the customers are having a bad experience because of the complexity of the, the business. The third pathway, and I'm going to stop talking, I promise, here in, in a minute and let you kind of react to these, but I want you to have the whole menu of what their research found is alternating in a stair-step approach between digitization and customer experience. So businesses that they found do this, try to improve both their customer experience and operational efficiencies. And that's kind of the, the middle hybrid between the two differences we saw. Uh, so basically the pathway, this is most popular pathway, I should say, because it makes perfect sense to pull out these tangible improvements and achieve those milestones along the way. But what they caution, again, always a scary story, is they have a slightly higher risk businesses that go this route. 
um, with a slightly lower than average financial performance. They must be disciplined, is what the researcher said, in shorter digital initiatives, um, completing them and actually maximizing that business value. So that third stage that we talk about, instead of just doing them and not understanding how to optimize them. Lastly, pathway four is forget the fussing, their exact words, with redirecting businesses, just create a whole new digital native business unit. So this would truly be a full-fledged digital transformation operationally, technology, and then also culturally as well. Um, this is for well-established companies that they're really focused on what is their future offering for their customers and how are they going to make sure that they're maximizing that growth and making money in the future. Um, they add a lot of times new ventures, new revenue streams with these digital initiatives. Um, and they give an example here, which I help. I think this is helpful. Um, for instance, an insurance firm could industrialize their core business, automate claims, and improve customer experience. At the same time, the firm would also create a unit with a new ecosystem business model to become a go-to destination for home security and integrate their insurance products and security products. So I think that kind of shows they really do a full flip on that business model and become a whole new identity. So as I said, I promised I would stop talking so that you could kind of give your two cents on this really interesting research. Um, I'm not even going to ask you like a specific question because I'm just very curious to your reaction um, to these these new publish. Well, it's interesting for sure. Is it, I have a core fundamental question. Is it suggesting then that there's, that these four paths are somewhat mutually exclusive? Like you, you pick one of these four paths and that's going to make you most likely to be successful? Or did they just happen to study these four options or these four paths? And were there any outcomes? Yeah, that's a good question. Or... Yeah. So there's many businesses that will go the same path. What their main finding and a big thesis is, if, if you go down many of these paths, your risk portfolio really grows. Mm -hmm. So being able to focus on one type of path and methodology seems to be where businesses are achieving success and most importantly, financial growth. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think it. what I like about this framework is it, A, it suggests that there's no one size fits all answer. Uh, B, it just shows you what some of the options are and some of the different ways you could go about a digital transformation. I'd be curious to know if you know, if there's any, do they have any conclusions on one of these four paths is the most effective or delivers the most value or is most likely to succeed or anything like that? Or is it just more, these are the four common ones and Hear the, hear the well, you know, researchers, they don't really like to, you know, give recommendations. They're academics. They say, this is the, this is it. No. Um, I think from what my preliminary research is, and I haven't read the book yet, I plan to, and I think we should discuss it further because it's, you know, a, a great new um, publication to kind of look into for our industry. But it seems as though that stair-step approach, as long as it's done well, is what they were focusing on. So kind of those micro steps to achieving parallel path 
operation efficiencies and customer experience is really going to get you there. You just have to have the discipline and the resistance as an organization or resilience, I should say. It's a Fort a Freudian strip. <laughs> I can't even talk. Um, yeah, right. Um, you have to have the discipline to continue to achieve that and understand there must be a very clear strategy and vision about what you're trying to achieve at the end of all of that. So it's kind of that um, walk before you run um, type of sustainable digital transformation. Yeah. And is it a, it almost sounds like that stair step is a akin to a, like an agile approach. Is that, is that your interpretation of it or is it something different? Hmm. I don't know that I would call it an agile approach. I, I think it's more of an honestly a, a full-fledged phased strategy as opposed to agile and flexible. It sounds more standardized to me. Um, but again, if one of the MIT researchers, you can get a hold of them um, through your fandom, Eric, and you can get them on the show, I'd love to ask them that question because that's just my opinion um, from actually reading the materials. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, it's super interesting. I, the one that jumped out at me the most was that first one, the one where you just digitize and the, you'll figure out the customer experience piece of it later. To me, that that was the one where I thought that just doesn't sound like a good idea at all. Um, but, you know, I, I'd be curious to see or, you know, read the book or the research to see if there's something there that I'm missing in terms of maybe that's highly effective or maybe there's some significant upside that, I, that I'm not aware of. But the other three certainly sound reasonable. And I think it's, uh, you know, a good, what I like about it is the model, in addition to showing the flexibility that we talked about is also that it, it, it sort of, it, it forces you to think about who you are as an organization, what you're trying to do with your transformation and then find the right path accordingly. So I like that part of it. I just, that first one was the one where I thought that seems like the least likely to succeed model or pathway for the four. But uh, I guess we'll have to read the book to find out more. Yeah, absolutely. They have an interesting quote from the author to describe that pathway one. Um, and the quote is, use that digital strength to rapidly innovate and delight customers. So it's like they kind of did it in secret and then all of a sudden came out and they're this full-fledged digital company. Um, but I, I do agree. It's, it, to me, that just screams analysis paralysis um, in my mind because getting really wrapped up with internal op operations and never being able to implement something sounds like that's the main risk factor with that pathway one. Yeah. And, and just lacking all direction, you know, in terms of like, why, why are we doing mm -hmm. this just so we can later go improve mm -hmm. the customer experience? Um, and I'm sure I'm oversimplifying it, I, I would imagine. Um, so I'm sure there's more to it than that, but that that's my interpretation kind of knee-jerk reaction, but I like it though. I, it's a cool, um, it's a cool idea for a book. And is it, is this book already out? Yes. Yep. So it's newly released. Um, it's called Future Ready, The Four Pathways to Capturing Digital Value. And again, it's by the MIT researchers. So there's a few authors to the book, um, but it is based upon all business digital transformation research, which is pretty rare in our industry to see that amount of research being put in emerging and modernizing technologies. So I think it's a great just for the overall industry move forward to having that best practice measurement so that we do experience hopefully many less failures and can um, get that 22% of only future ready companies up a little bit so that there can be more success and, and innovation. Yeah, 
Yeah, that's very cool. It's very, sounds like a great, great book. Yeah, right. So we'll have to read it. I always say we should have a book club on ground control. So maybe this will, you know, be a catalyst to starting that that piece. Um, but another trend I wanted to talk about in the industry that I think is really interesting, especially from capital and what what um, companies are spending and kind of how businesses are approaching it, is uh, this shift to sustainable stick tech, which we've seen, we've talked a lot about um, kind of agricultural technology, um, green technology, and how that kind of affects the logistics of the overall industry. Uh, but basically, I wanted to kind of showcase some examples of very large businesses that are getting involved in um, sustainable tech and get your reaction to that. So IBM, starting with them, they've developed a system to help farmers use less water and fertilizer while maintaining crop fields um, and then work on sustainable packaging. Nestle is an example of that, too, when it comes to their packaging here in North America. They're actually using paper-based water bottles that are fully recyclable and use significantly less energy to produce. Um, and then when we're talking about that net zero carbon pledge that we've, we've talked about, Amazon has actually pledged um, by 2040 to be 100% renewable. Um, so, excuse me, they will be zero net carbon by 2040 and will be 100% renewable by 2030. So putting that timeline there. And Goldman and Sachs is investing over $700 billion in sustainable businesses by 2030, which is a staggering number. The one thing I wanted to ask you about is there seems to be this trend um, for partnering in the sustainable industry or sustainable technology in general to develop kind of energy-heavy technologies and utilizing established AI or blockchain um, or those types of prioritizations and emerging technologies. So, for example, Google is developing a technology to maximize energy efficiency and reduce waste because they've developed that AI cooling center, which can account for a lot of significant reductions in energy. And many businesses have purchased this from them um, in order to implement into their own um, kind of operations. So I thought that was kind of an interesting um, mix of, of meeting, you know, beating the technology where it's at, as opposed to trying to create your, create your own um, when it comes to the sustainable tech. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I mean, it, it's uh, that example you just gave the AI and the, the cooling of infrastructure, you know, that, that whole thing, that that's something I hadn't thought about or wasn't aware of. So I, I could see that being a big deal or continuing to be a bigger deal uh, as time goes on for sure. And I'm curious, when you go into business or when the third stage team goes into businesses, is sustainability often a conversation that you have in regards to future technologies? It's a good question. And uh, if I'm going to be candid, I would say, no, it's it's typically not, or it's not. And again, this is just my limited purview of, of clients that I interact with directly. Um, I could be missing something. There could be other team members on our team that would tell you otherwise, but it's in terms of executive conversations and which is where I tend to get involved is more the upfront strategy and the upfront um, executive discussions. It hasn't been top of mind for uh, really any organizations I can think of, but it, it's, it, it's an interesting dichotomy though, because 
that seems to be where the world is going on one hand, but on the other hand, I don't hear it day to day. Um, you know, just on the front lines, I, I'm not hearing it at the moment, but I think that'll change in the future. Yeah, definitely. And I, th- I think it's an interesting, um, an interesting movement for specifically our food and beverage when it comes to energy cooling and their supply chain and what that looks like as far as costs. And then also our agricultural clients and um, just a, a quick, funny client story. Um, my husband, Adam Cheatham, works at Third Stage as well. And um, we've become brand loyal to many of our clients, especially in the food and beverage space. Um, and that really speaks to kind of how he manages his projects. He really is passionate about businesses that that do that. But we were in the grocery store the other day after he came back from a, a manufacturing plant tour that um, manufactured tortilla chips. So I went to go grab this tortilla chips off the shelf, you know, just a a brand name. He's like, we don't buy those. We buy these now all the time because of the most amazing tortilla chips he had right off of the um, the production floor. So <laughs> it's an interesting cool. piece to to be involved in that um, and that side. And I know food and beverage and um, farming. That's a really important piece for their their overall strategies. So um, I think that's a cool part about third stage. We work with so many people, so many different yeah. industries. You know. Yeah, absolutely. And I actually, uh, two things. One is that um, when you're talking about food and Bev, and I'm kind of walking back my answer to your question about, are we hearing about sustainability? Food and beverage, yes. I, I would say in food and beverage, it's it's there's a lot of talk about sustainability, but it's still, in my opinion, in the context of how do we be more efficient? How do we improve our supply chain? Um, how do we get um, you know more predictable sources uh, for our food? things of that nature. Um, so there is that piece of it in food and beverage, but I'd say, you know, if I'm looking across industry, sustainability, there's a lot of talk about it at the corporate level, but when it comes to how are we going to deploy technology, how are we going to improve our business? There's not, it, I don't feel like the vision that is set by executives for sustainability, I don't feel like that's quite translating into technology yet with the exception of potentially food and beverage. Um, the other thing, yeah, just a, a side note about about Adam's uh, brand loyalty or your your brand loyalty as well with with clients is I still I still use the so the very first client that I got with Panorama when I started Panorama back in two thousand five, um, very first client we got there was a consumer services company and I still use that same consumer services company. They're based here in Denver where where we are and I still use that same company. We have lots of other options, a lot of lower cost options, but I still use that. So to your point, I'm very loyal to our clients as well. Yeah, absolutely. We had a a toy company client and that's all that our kids now have. And I'm, I just laughed because, you know, we got all of, he's not typically on the shopping side. We're very traditional in those family dynamic roles, but he was all into buying them this specific brand. So we love our clients and we support them both personally and professionally for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about this last hot topic here, and then we can kind of jump into um, the additional segments of our episode. But this is an interesting kind of movement that's come out of the um, the resurgence of, of remote work and just the overall need for communication, specifically on the technology side. So I had some numbers I wanted to share with you when it comes to business and workplace applications. Um, so the average knowledge worker toggles between 
between apps over 1,200 times a day. So we're talking about something like Microsoft Teams or Slack or Zoom or those types of, of different um, employee interfaces. Uh, and that's four hours a week or five working weeks spent in a year hitting um, different apps that they're going through. Uh, researchers actually call it uh, the toggling tax. And um, the reason they do that is because uh, it really has seen a direct disengagement on productivity and overall um, deficiencies and processes because of all of these different technologies that you're toggling between. Um, large companies now deploy about 187 apps on average, and that's up from 77 in 2015. So, um, so wow. they kind of talked about that's how many are in you. Yeah. So now, how many? Like 187. Yes. Mm -hmm. Compared to the 77 that they they used to have in 2015. Um, and then what they found in this research is nearly one third of them are very redundant and add very little value. Um, so the researchers in this actual study, when it came to the toggling tax, gave some recommendations to these specific businesses that they surveyed in research. Um, so one company they looked at had gone from 800 apps to 200 apps by meeting regularly with their IT team to do an audit of all of the different apps. Many of these executives didn't even know they had those <laughs> apps in the business. Um, so that's kind of become a main strategy. They've also recommended limiting the notifications and integrating a project management software like Monday.com or Asana to consolidate all of those apps. Um, so, you know, obviously being in the business software field as an expert, I wanted to get your feedback if you if this is something you've seen or if these recommendations you feel like would be successful and just knowing kind of we're on that brink of employee burnout and all of the apps and connectivity can really, really obviously from this research negatively impact your overall efficiency and production as an organization. Yeah, I think it's something that is similar to the conversation that has run over the last several years around organizations that are using uh, spreadsheets and, you know, kind of offline processes and offline tools. It's a similar kind of dynamic in, in other than instead of talking about spreadsheets, we're talking about other apps that are being deployed to solve specific problems. And I guess the good news with technology today is that it's advancing so much and there's so many options available that you can plug a hole within the organization. Or if there's a tool that is missing or your core application can't do something, you can probably find an application out there that can do those things better. So that's the good news. But the bad news is you end up with 187 different applications. And then over time, you find that, you know, we can't integrate this stuff or half of it's obsolete or people aren't using it or uh, they're using it differently. And there's no oversight as to how, you know, how that technology all ties together. So, you know, sort of a good news, bad news situation, but I think that's a real problem. And that's why a lot of companies come to us that they say, hey, we've got all these different systems and now we want to consolidate into a single or at least a smaller subset of core applications. And Eric, does this kind of parallel path with the industry's focus on things like cybersecurity? I, I'm just assuming yeah. that the more apps you have, the more doors that hackers yeah. potentially have into your business. Yeah, it's a great point. I had, I, that did not enter my brain as I was responding to your, your question, but that's absolutely a huge point that you bring up is that um, now you're exposing 
the vulnerabilities of these 187 apps are affecting each other, presumably, assuming they're integrated to some degree, uh, particularly if you're using a core centralized ERP system or a core centralized set of applications, and then you're adding on these other applications that somehow tie into it. Um, and even if they don't tie together, you just have these silos of data sitting out there somewhere that may or may not be secure. And you presumably have company information in there that is presumably sensitive. And, you know, your IT department isn't able to necessarily provide the cybersecurity and controls that they need to in, in that situation. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that for some reason I'm in like a failure, cyber attack, Halloween, <laughs> scary story mood today. So I just immediately, right, <laughs> right, I know, I guess, I guess. But on that note, let's talk a little organizational change because um, that always makes us happy um, as well. And I know you have a, a great Q&A coming up from our audience here. Yeah, yeah, let's do that. And it'll be sort of a, a prelude. We'll get the, the good news covered first, you know, we'll kind of cover the touchy feely, feel good piece of the human aspect of change. And then we'll totally shift gears and do a 180 later in the show when we get into failures and top 10 failures of all time, why digital transformations fail, all that good stuff. But first we'll, we'll get to that and uh, we'll take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about change management strategies for 2023 and beyond. It's an interactive session we'll have here with the audience and taking audience questions. And uh, we'll get to that here as soon as we take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling, the CEO of Third Stage Consulting. And we recently hosted our Digital Stratosphere 2022 virtual event. It's three days of packed content related to digital transformation best practices, about 16 or 18 different workshops and different speakers that are presenting on different topics, everything you need to know about transformation. The, the bad news is you, if you miss that event, the event's over. The, the live event already happened. But the good news, if you've missed it, or even if you did attend it and you want to see replays or you want to catch the sessions you missed, you can do that now by going to stratosphere2022.com. Go to stratosphere2022.com, register. All you have to do is put in your, your name and email address, uh, just a few fields. You get immediate access to all the recordings. And the recordings cover everything from digital strategy, um, software selection, organizational change, process improvement, architecture, data migration, cloud, trends in the industry, um, how to avoid failure, some of the legal aspects to think about, contractual aspects to think about as it relates to your transformation. All that is stuff that you'll get by registering for Stratosphere 2022 Replay. And again, go to stratosphere2022.com and you can listen to all the replays of all the workshops that you might have missed at the event. So hope you check it out, and uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 91. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. So be sure to check us out there. You can also find new episodes on audio podcast platforms throughout the world, including Amazon, Google, Apple, Spotify, and others. I'm excited for our next segment. We're going to actually not have a guest on the show per se, but we're going to have a bunch of guests, I guess you could say, on the other hand, which is the audience. We're going to take questions from the audience about change management, change management strategies. We're going to talk about why change management is so important in general, but especially why it's especially important now in the 2020s as technology continues to evolve and advance at a rapid breakneck speed. So with that, let's jump in and start talking about change management. We'll take some audience questions as well. 
But just to start, I think what, what would be helpful is to sort of set the context for why why change management is so important. Um, that's the, the key topic we want to cover here today. And the reason change management is so important in general, again, regardless of when you might go about a digital transformation, is because if you think about where we are in the world today with, with digital transformation, uh, the technology is changing a lot faster than humans' ability to change. So you think of all these really cool technologies that are out there right now in terms of uh, artificial intelligence and business analytics and, and business intelligence, uh, machine learning, all these really cool technologies that are really pretty groundbreaking and, and quantum leap improvements from what technologies we've had in the past as organizations. And that's generally a good thing. There's, there's a lot of opportunity that is available to organizations that deploy that sort of technology. But the downside or the dark side of all these advancements and all these billions of dollars of R&D that have been invested in recent years is that people and humans and organizations in particular aren't able to change any faster than they could have changed 10, 20, 30 years ago. Um, and it's, it's not necessarily an absolute, by the way. I mean, there are there are there is a case to be made that people are changing and used to change more now than they were in the past. But I would still argue that the technology is changing a lot faster than we as humans are able to keep up. And so if you look at that from that perspective, especially when you think about how organizations have lagged in their technology investments in recent decades, you put those pieces together, you find that change management is even more important today now than it was years ago. And so that's really the, the context of what we want to talk about today is, you know, how do we how do we keep up with technology? Because I, I don't worry that much about technology. I think the technology, the software vendors and the developers and the technologists out there in the world, they've got that stuff pretty well figured out. They, they're constantly advancing. They're constantly pushing the boundaries, coming up with new capabilities, and new technologies. I don't think we'll ever face a deficit of capabilities and opportunities and options in the technology space. But where organizations um, tend to struggle, though, is that it's such a big jump from where they are today to where they're going that the people side of change oftentimes becomes the overwhelming uh, critical success factor or risk factor, depending on how you look at it. So that's a, that's really the key thing to think about is, is how do we how do we navigate that change? How do we help the organization and help people keep up with the change and keep up with some of those technological advances? And of course, if we back up a little bit too, just again, looking at this through the lens of people, human factors, and organizational change management, it all starts with your digital strategy too, and really understanding where you are today culturally, and as an organization, and where it is you want to head in the future, and how big of a leap is it that you're really willing to take or, or make as a result of that. So that's that's really one thing that we have to think about is how does it start in terms of the digital transformation or the digital strategy early on, and how do we ensure that we have a digital strategy that's right-sized for us as an organization. Now, we do constantly want to push the boundaries. We don't want to get stuck in our old ways. We don't want to resist change or just settle for something less than what is possible with technology. But at the same time, we don't want to deploy technology to the point where we get overwhelmed by technology. Organization can't adapt to the new technology. We can't consume the technology. We get no business value out of the technology. And we end up with a money pit of a project where we invest a bunch of money in shelfware that just sits there that we can't use because we haven't figured out how to keep the, the people side aligned. And so I think it, it all starts with that digital strategy and figuring out what is the right roadmap and digital strategy to ensure that we get um, that we get the business value we want and that we're able to realistically 
get to where it is we're trying to get to in the future, knowing that it's not going to happen overnight. It's not something that we're going to completely transform our culture in, you know, one or two years or three years or however long your transformation might be. Uh, but we can start to think about how do we bend that culture? How do we be really deliberate about our digital strategy so that the technology doesn't just happen to us, but instead we're using technology deliberately to help bend the culture and, and sort of shift us to that future state uh, that we're trying to, to get to. So just a real quick uh, background too, I, I actually started my career as a change management consultant um, in the late 90s. So when I started off as a, in the consulting world, I was doing change management projects for pretty big um, SAP and, and some Oracle uh, implementations in the late 90s into the early 2000s. And so this is sort of where I grew up is in this change management space. And I tend to think about digital transformation with a, with a change management first sort of mentality. And so, um, so really look forward to, to uh, comments or questions you might uh, have here. So just shifting to the audience though, before I jump into questions you all might have about change management, how do we navigate this human side of change? Um, I wanna thank uh, some of the people that have commented on where they're from today. We have people from, or we have someone on YouTube. We have Spencer from South Jordan, Utah, uh, Kyler from Grand Junction, Colorado, uh, William from Lusaka, Zambia, James from Lucaster, UK, uh, someone from Lagos in Nigeria, uh, Sam Graham from Spain. Uh, so really appreciate uh, you all being here and, and from all over the world and mentioning and commenting on, on where you are today. And uh, you know, the first comment that I'll, I'll share here today is uh, Sam Graham, who's a regular uh, guest on our show, uh, is looking for more valuable insights, but no pressure. And uh, we'll leave it to Sam to sort of set the tone and put a lot of pressure on us to, to begin with. Uh, so thanks for being here again, Sam. Um, so here's, here's a uh, first question I want to start with here, which is a great question from uh, Kyler, who's my podcast co-host, um, joining from Colorado as well. And her question is on LinkedIn, she asked, in, t in talking about emerging technology, how would you explain evolving roles that may be taken over? Um, and this is a really good question because it's something I haven't mentioned yet, which is as technology changes faster and as organizations try to keep up with technological changes. And, and in my opinion, they don't do a very good job of it in general, because again, the technology is changing faster than, than humans and organizations are, are capable of. But in addition to that, we also have to think about what is the disruption or the perceived risk that technology has on people. Um, so when you think about um, emerging technology, so for example, if you think about um, automation tools and uh, um, it, what's the word I'm looking for? The, um, not just automation tools, but uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence and things that are replacing what humans used to do in some way, in some fashion. Um, there's a perceived risk to that, um, uh, to that technology. And especially I'd say it's, it's even more of a risk or more of a perceived risk now than it was 10 or 20 years ago. I think it's always been a challenge. People have always feared technology in some way because it's changing their jobs. It's making their jobs um, in some cases, somewhat obsolete. What they used to do is is different, or at least the mix of work they're doing becomes different because now they have different tools, they have different capabilities. And while it may be a good thing for the organization overall, and it may be even a good thing for that each individual longer term, the perception isn't such. So people fear that technology in general, but especially when you start talking about artificial intelligence, machine learning, uh, general automation tools that have the possibility of completely 
doing away with or eliminating certain parts of someone's job, there's going to be fear and resistance to that. No matter how much the organization might benefit from it long-term and even in the short-term, people in general are going to fear that change if you don't manage the change appropriately. And that's why I always advise clients or suggest that you go in with the, the expectation that there's going to be a ton of resistance to change. Uh, because a lot of times organizations get lulled into complacency because on the surface, they're hearing from their employees that they're excited about the change. Uh, they don't like their old systems. They can't wait to have better tools in place. Um, they, they see the value and the vision for the organization and, and things that are true. I don't think employees lie to, to leadership or are, are disingenuous in any sort of way. But what I think the problem is, is that people agree in theory with technological technological changes and digital transformations. But when you get down to the details of how that how that change is going to impact individuals and work groups within the organization, that's where people start to resist the change because it, it disrupts their lives. It changes their jobs. If we haven't painted a clear vision of what their job is going to look like and what people are going to do with tasks that have been eliminated or automated, they're going to assume the worst and we have to paint that clear vision. So I think that's one of the challenges with emerging technologies. Back to the question is that uh, technology is oftentimes um, something that, that especially in today's day and age, that creates more fear in, in people in organizations than ever because it's so powerful, because it can do so much, because it can automate so much and replace so much of the human manual work that we've done in years past. We sort of lose that, we lose that sense of purpose or, or in our in our minds, in our perception is that we don't have that same purpose. And there's questions about what is our value to the organization if you're going to automate X percent of my job. Um, and therefore, that's why I start to resist change. I have, I have fear, I have uncertainty, I have doubt. And that's those are the types of things that are going to create challenges for, for organizations um, and for people. So I think that's really the way to think about, you know, all these emerging technologies, good stuff again, but you just have to be realistic about how hard it's going to be to consume that technology within an organization in most cases. Of course, if you're a, you know, if you're a younger company, if you're a startup, um, you haven't been around very long, you don't have all the baggage and all the, you know, matured business processes for better, or for worse. Uh, it might be a little bit easier for you to adapt to emerging technologies, but for a lot of organizations we work that, that have been around for decades, if in some cases more than a century, um, they have pretty well established processes. They have employees with tenure, um, all these factors that contribute to more resistance to change or more difficulty changing. And so you have to really look inward at who you are as an organization and where you are today. And realistically, where do you think you can get in the near to intermediate term and be sure you, you're realistic about what you can really consume and what amount of time. And then once you've done that, then you figure out what's the best change strategy and the change management plan to help you get there. So great question, though, about emerging technologies, because I think the emerging technologies and some of the more advanced technologies are the ones that create more of a change management problem and challenge for organizations. And so that's uh, something to, to uh, consume here or to think about here. So uh, thank you for all the questions, by the way. There's a lot of them coming in, so I appreciate that. That makes the, the conversation a lot easier, and uh, I'd rather focus on your questions and answers rather than... than uh, than my outline here. Um, so next question is from Avanada or Avanand. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that and I apologize for that, but over on LinkedIn. 
Um, and he asked the question, what do you think is the right cadence of involving business folks while a big change is underway? How to ensure ownership and participation? And this is from Avi. I guess, uh, thank you for uh, giving me the, the easier pronunciation, which is Avi from Poland over on LinkedIn. Thank you for that question. Um, so, so the question is, what's the right cadence of involving business folks while a big change is underway? How do you ensure you've got that ownership and participation? And what I would say to that is that it's it's really important to ensure that you, first of all, have that business involvement early on. Um, so in other words, if you're in IT, if you're a CIO or you're a, uh, in the PMO office, let's just say you're a program manager and or you're in the IT department and you're sort of leading the charge or you've been tasked with leading the charge for a digital project of sorts, then I would say one of the very first things you do in the project, regardless of where you are in the project, even if you're in the early, early planning stages of the project, that's the ideal time to start this. That is you involve or you identify who all the key stakeholders are that need to be involved. And this is certainly going to be executives from different parts of the business that are going to presumably be impacted by the transformation. But it's also other people that might have secondary um, secondary impacts as well. So it's not just executives. You're also looking at other key stakeholders and influencers within the organization and trying to get them involved. And the more you can get them involved in the early stages of you know, choosing the technology, defining what the roadmap is, defining what our future state operating model is, what our future state organization is going to be, those are the things that really drive and provide a foundation for transformation. So in other words, if you think about IT, I mean, IT's role is to provide tools that help enable that foundation. And that foundation is all the other stuff. It's the organization, the operations. Uh, the overall strategy, the alignment of this project, the overall transformation project with larger, uh, bigger picture goals and objectives. So you really want to not lead with IT, you know, taking the burden of trying to do it all. And so the sooner you can get business people, stakeholders and executives involved in the project, the better. Um, It's tricky because you can't involve everyone, but you can start to identify who those key people are recognizing that yes, it might slow things down. Yes, it might be more difficult to get to consensus on what our direction is and what our strategy is. But my argument to that or my my response to that is that it's a lot easier and faster to deal with that stuff up front and to slow down the project up front, if you will, to work through those areas of alignment. If you do that early on up front, then later on the project ends up going faster. Whereas if you sort of lead with technology and let IT just run with it and then get business people involved later, what ends up happening is that then they resist the change because they weren't part of the decisions. They don't have the buy-in, the support, the ownership, the accountability, all those things that are important to make a project succeed. You don't have if you're leading with technology and then getting other people involved later on. So if you can get those people involved from the business early on, they have buy-in, they have ownership, they have accountability, all that stuff. Yes, it's going to slow things down. Yes, it's going to take longer to get to a decision or get to a series of decisions that you need to make in defining your digital strategy. But that investment in time and that potential frustration that goes with that is a lot, it's time well spent. It's a good investment because it will make things a lot easier later on than if you had to deal with the resistance uh, that you might have otherwise. Um, So great question. So I think, you know, getting business people involved early on making them part of the process. And and quite frankly, if you're in IT, I hate to say you're not responsible for the success of the project because that's not true, but you shouldn't 
carry the entire weight of a transformation. It should be the business and, and the business folks that make key decisions that um, define what that future state operating model is and what the organization is going to look like. All that stuff, those are the inputs into a really successful project and you need business people to do that uh, rather than just IT trying to lead the charge on that. So it, it really does deflect some of the pressure from IT if you involve the business. So from a purely, call it a self-serving perspective, um, if you're in IT, it's going to make your lives a lot easier and take some of the pressure off you because now you're sharing that burden with with others uh, in the organization and in the business people that are ultimately going to make the project successful or, or provide the the opportunities for success. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control, the podcast on all things technology agnostic. We're having a great Q&A session with our audience and CEO, Eric Kimberling. We will be right back with more questions after the break. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. We're in the midst of a Q&A around organizational change management strategies for 2023 with our CEO and founder, Eric Kimberling. So let's get back to some of these hot questions. So here's another uh, comment here um, from LinkedIn. I don't have a name here, but it's from someone on LinkedIn. And that is, uh, what are the main points to focus on during mergers and acquisitions regarding digital transformation? Great question. We, we have a lot of clients. I'd say probably half or maybe a little more of our client work is related to merger acquisition, merger and acquisition integration. So in other words, company goes out and buys another company and or merges with other companies to create one consolidated entity. And that's oftentimes why they hire us is to figure out, okay, we've acquired these companies or this other organization. Now we've got to figure out how to, how to integrate those operations and those technologies and the organization into one uh, consolidated um, organization. And I'd say here, some of the things to think about during merger and acquisition integration, which is a great question here, by the way, um, some of the things to think about, though, are first of all, you know, defining what the overall strategy is for the merger and acquisition integration. So in other words, is our strategy to uh, drive costs down to, to maximize efficiency? Is it to really just expand our market reach, but provide flexibility and sort of a decentralized independent approach to satisfying those different markets, in which case maybe we're not consolidating, maybe we're not standardizing as much as we might otherwise. Um, so those are a couple things to think about. Um, we also have to think about um, the organization itself. You know, how is the organization going to um, integrate? What are people's roles and responsibilities going to be? What are we going to do with duplicate 
uh, levels of work or areas of work? Um, are we going to move to a shared service model where we take back office functions like accounting or finance or IT, HR? Are we going to consolidate those into in sort of a, a centralized or consolidated back office function that's spread in supporting the entire combined entity? Those are the sorts of strategies you've got to define first. And then once you know what those strategies are, then you start to define what is the digital transformation strategy that best help us, helps us get there. So again, just getting back to the the example of uh, of, of where uh, or an organization might be in terms of integrating uh, operations, organization, uh, the technology, um, all those components. Um, you want to make sure that you've you've uh, defined a strategy that 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 enables that. But when you think about a a call it a more of a consolidated or uh, centralized approach to to merger and acquisition and integration, it might be more likely in that case that since we're trying to create a common operating platform, we're trying to consolidate the operations in the organization, we're trying to uh, consolidate technologies, that might be a better business case or a better fit for a strategy that involves a single enterprise-wide technology or a single ERP system, for example, or a a single set of of tools that are going to be used throughout the entire organization. Um, In some cases, however, if that's not the strategy, if the strategy is to take more of a decentralized or a um, confederate sort of approach where you've got entities that are remaining uh, somewhat independent from other organizations, um, then that might be a better case for more of a best of breed approach where you're looking for more flexibility or looking for more, uh, not so, so much a one size fits all answer, but more of a, a uh, focus on uh, providing tools that provide capabilities in different areas or different parts of the organization. So you really have to look at what the strategy is for the M&A integration and then align your digital strategy with that. And then, of course, behind all that, you know, or a key part of all that is the the overall uh, change strategy as well. So you want to define now that we've defined whatever that overall digital strategy is that supports our M&A goals. Now we can define a change management strategy that best enables us or allows us to um, accomplish whatever those those goals might be. So great question about M&A uh, integration. There's actually, uh, I actually have a few videos on my YouTube channel that talk about M&A integration and change management in general, by the way. So if you haven't already, if you just go to my YouTube channel, you can search merger or search M&A and you'll find uh, the videos that talk about M&A integration uh, on there as well. So here's an interesting question that... Uh, is somewhat related to change management. I, th- I, the, I guess the good thing about change management is that it any part of a digital transformation somehow affects or could be affected by change management. Um, and this question here, I think, is one of those examples where it may not sound like it's related to digital, or it may not sound like it's related to change management, but it is something that's very relevant. And that question here is from Spencer on YouTube. Uh, Spencer asks, I just joined a new firm where my coworkers have a strong bias toward one ERP software. I believe in a more technology agnostic approach. Any advice on helping others see the light? Thanks. Um, great question. I think you know you're onto something first and foremost, which is that you you want to be objective in defining a digital strategy, including your your change strategy that goes within the overall digital strategy. So you want to look first and foremost at what are the needs of the business, what are the priorities, what are the needs of the business. And be open-minded about what sort of technology or technologies might best enable 
those those goals and objectives. Um, even once you've decided on technology, though, you still want to retain that independence or that that technology agnostic view of the world because whatever technology or technologies you choose, you're going to run into situations where the technology just isn't a good fit. There's some sort of problem or misalignment between what the technology can or can't do and what it is you want the business uh, to accomplish. So you, you really want to ensure that you're not just going in with the blinders on, which quite frankly, that's one of the biggest challenge I, challenges I believe in the digital transformation industry is that you have a bunch of parties involved in these projects that are extremely biased. You have software vendors, you have the system integrators, the, the resellers, um, even just most ERP consultants. I would argue most consultants in this industry are extremely biased, either because they, they're aligned with and compensated by certain software vendors or and or they only know one or, or a small subset of technology that are available and that's all they know. And they, they lead with a mentality of we've got to find a way for this technology to solve whatever problem is in front of me. And so it's understandable why the industry is built the way it was. It's, it's extremely effective at selling software, but it's not very effective at implementing successfully. So what we have to do as organizations is figure out how do we get rid of that bias? You know, how do we ensure that we are keeping an open mind, that we understand what our options really are? We understand what the pros and cons and trade-offs are. That's, that's also very important. Um, even if all you do is not necessarily change your decision about what type of technology you deploy, but at the very least, you understand what the deficiencies or the trade-offs are for that technology, then that's a huge accomplishment because every technology that's out there, no matter how good it is, is going to have some sort of dark side. Um, not because they're you know explicitly um, flawed in some way, but because implementing technologies within an organization just has inherent risks and you have to understand what those risks are. But the goal and objectives of salespeople, people that are trying to sell software and trying to sell the technical services to support that software, their job is to convince you that it's not as bad as it seems and that there's all upside and very little downside. But that's not reality. The reality is there's risk. There's pretty significant risk. And so we have to have that technology agnostic view early on. So I think that's one way you can sell that concept to, um, to stakeholders within your new business. Back, back to the question on LinkedIn um, is you need to convince and, and help people understand the importance of having that agnostic view and approach with, with uh, digital strategies in general. Um, and at the same time too, by the way, you don't want to totally disregard, um, I hate to say the word bias in this case, because it's not really the bias that you don't want to disregard. It's more of the internal competencies you've already built. So for, for example, or in other words, if you have certain people within the organization that have specialized in one sort of software because it's the software you've used internally as an organization, you don't want to assume that you know that's the right answer going forward, but you do want to recognize that, that we've got a strong, let's just say an SAP capability that we've built internally or a Microsoft Dynamics capability that we've built internally over the last 5, 10, 20 years. And it's not that you want to be biased about that, but you do want to use that as a data point that suggests that, well, we've got these capabilities that we've built in-house already. Is there some benefit or what is the benefit of remaining on that legacy system or, or just upgrading to, to a newer version of that legacy system or the incumbent software provider? Um, you want to understand what the pros and cons and trade-offs are of that. So you want to recognize the things that might cause bias and you might want to use those in, as inputs into your decision. 
but you, you to your point you want to make sure you keep a, an open mind and really understand what all the technologies are that are out there because i think 10 20 years ago for example if you're a big organization 10 or 20 years ago you really didn't have a lot of options realistically for a full-blown enterprise-wide erp system other than sap and oracle um and when I say Oracle, I mean, I include uh, PeopleSoft and JD Edwards in that just because Oracle owns them. But really, those were the two big software providers that service big companies. However, now if you look at big companies, they've got tons of options. You, yes, you have SAP, you have Oracle. They're still very well entrenched in the Fortune you know, 500 or the Fortune 1000 companies throughout the world. But you have a ton of other options now. You've got upstarts or, or what used to be upstarts not too long ago, like Workday and Salesforce that focus on one specific problem or one specific capability. And they just try to do that really well. And they're products that can scale. So those are some things to think about is you, you have a lot more options now in the marketplace than you did five or 10 or 20 years ago. So that might be another way to, to convince, uh, to convince your, your team at your new company that, that, uh, that piece is important. So here's a question. I love this question. Um, and this is from Sam Graham on LinkedIn. He always has really good questions, but this one's particularly good. And that is, should change management start in the C-suite and work its way down, start at the coalface and work its way up, or should it attack on all fronts simultaneously? Um, so in other words, is this a, should change management be a uh, top-down sort of initiative? Should it be bottoms up or should it be a hybrid or a mix of both? Um, great question. And, um, I'm, I'm a bit, I've, I've mixed feelings on this to start. First of all, I'd say it depends, which is the classic uh, consulting uh, cop-out, if you will, uh, or, or hedging response, but it does depend. You do have to define what, um, what it is, first of all, what your culture is as an organization. If you are a inherently a top-down type of organization, then you're probably going to lean a little bit more towards a top-down approach to change management. Um, but not only do you look at where you are today, it may be that you're trying to become more of a, a flat organization or more of a bottoms up sort of organization in general. So you might pepper in more of that bottoms up uh, change management approach um, to help enable that that intended cultural shift. But what I'd say in general is that generally both both are very effective in different ways. So I'll tell you where the top down components of change management are most appropriate and then maybe give a couple examples of where the bottoms up approach to change management is most important. So on let's build the case for why you need some level of top-down change management. Well, if you look at why most digital transformations fail, one of the root causes for why they fail is because they don't have internal alignment. They don't have a transformation initiative that's aligned with what the overall goals and objectives of the company are. So that right there is a, is a case or a business case for why you should start with a top-down approach. You want to clearly define what the vision of the organization is. And more specific to this project, you want to define how this digital transformation project is going to enable that future state vision. And you want to be very clear and deliberate about what those different parameters are and what those um, different things are that we're trying to accomplish with this transformation. And that's something you really do need to do from top-down. You can certainly solicit input. I'm not saying don't listen to people, don't ask questions, but I, what I am saying is at the end of the day, it needs to be the top down that makes that decision, that makes that final decision of this is who we're going to be, this is where we're headed, this is where we're going. Now we figure out how this transformation better supports that. So you need that clarity of vision up top 
to push that down the organization to make sure you're aligned and make sure that you have um, that clarity and that that internal focus on where it is you're headed. On the other hand, um, you can't just take a top-down approach and assume that change management is going to work. Um, there, there are still organizations out there that, depending on what part of the world you're in or part of depending on what their culture is as an organization, that think that they can just force their people to change and that they will change. And there is some truth to that. I suppose if you if you tell someone you're going to fire them if they don't change, that that could be a compelling reason to change, but it's not a it's not a sustainable, long-lasting change. It's 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 a fear-based change that's based on survival, and I'll just change just enough to where I don't get fired. You know, if that's if that's my fear, um, and that's not what you want. You want people that are committed to the change and that are part of the change and that are helping fuel the change and push the change. Um, you can't do it all from the top down. You need key stakeholders, influencers throughout the organization to help. So you want to get their buy-in. You want to get their input. You want to involve them. Um, you want them involved in. Um, helping define what that future state is more at the granular level within the parameters of what's been set from the top down. Now you start making decisions as a project team and lower levels in the organization that are around what specific processes might look like or what specific organizational designs might look like that support that that future state. So yes, you do want that top-down clarity, the vision, the alignment, but you also want that bottoms-up approach. And by the way, too, you know, if you think about where the change is really going to happen and where the change is really going to stick, it's not going to stick because the CEO or the CIO or C-level executive or executive sponsor sends out a few emails saying that we are changing. This is why we're doing it. Here's why we have to do it. And here's what it means to you. That stuff is important, but that's not going to enable the change. All that's doing is laying the groundwork for the potential change. So in order to get the change to really stick, it's all the people lower in the organization, the mid-level managers, I would argue, are even more important than the executives because mid-level managers have more influence over frontline employees, or at least they have more direct influence day to day. And so if you can get mid-level management on board and get them really running with the change, soliciting input from their people, hearing the concerns from their people, responding to the concerns of their people, that's what's really going to enable the change to stick better than if we're just to push it down from the top down to the org- through the organization. Um, certainly when you get into uh, training the trainer and um, discussing change impacts and helping people understand how their jobs are going to change, that's all the kind of things that need to happen at the lower levels in the organization. So it's a long-winded way of saying that it's really a mix of both top down from the executives on down to the organization and from the bottom up, um, or at least in the lower level levels of the organization that you want to see that change uh, enabled. Here's a question that may not sound like it has much to do with change management, but I'll, I'll make it uh, something to do with change management. And that is, uh, this is a question from uh, YouTube. And this question is, hi, you said that SaaS-based ERP solutions, especially from the top three, are not fully matured. Do you still feel that same about that today? Um, and so the, so in other words, I'll rephrase it or maybe clarify it a little bit. So software as a service is uh, what SaaS stands for. And if you're not aware, software as a service is when you have a, a multi-tenant um, instance of a software solution that is somewhat shared by other organizations. So in other words, that instance or that um, that the way that software works is pretty consistent across organizations that might use the software. 
And you compare that to on-premise solutions where you install it internally, you configure it, customize it, do whatever you want to it and make it your own. Um, and it doesn't matter because it's yours. You own it. You've got your single instance within your organization. Whereas SaaS uh, software as a service is more scale. It's, it's focused on scale and consistency and repeatable processes. Yes, you can make changes to it. You can configure, you can personalize it, but it's not as easy to customize or make material changes to the software as it would be with on-premise. You might wonder, well, what does this have to do with change management? And I'd say it has a lot to do with change management because as organizations and as software vendors move more to the cloud and to these SaaS models, what it's doing is, is it's imposing more pressure on change management teams to figure out how to change the organization to adapt to the software. Whereas in years past, you had the option or you had more of an option to change the software to fit the business. So, you know, you could customize it a lot more when it was on-premise. And quite frankly, that customization oftentimes was a smokescreen or a, a symptom of a deeper root cause, which is the resistance to change. So when people resist change, what ends up happening is they, they don't want to change to fit the software. So they want the software to fit them and fit what they want. Um, and so that's where change management becomes so important because now in a SaaS model, you don't have quite as many options, um, although this is changing. I, I will admit SaaS um, solutions and cloud solutions are becoming more flexible over time. They're becoming more mature. Um, they're, they're increasing their capabilities every day, every quarter, et cetera. But they're still not as fully robust and as established and as flexible as some of the on-prem systems that were around for you know, 20 years in some cases, 30 years in some cases. So um, in, in whereas cloud and SaaS are relatively new. I mean, you, it's only been around for a few years where you've really had these these uh, big ERP systems that are, that are operating successfully in the cloud. Um, so, so that's why change management is so important as it relates especially to a, a SaaS or a software as a service cloud model. Um, but even aside from that, um, you also look at the fact that the big three, to back to the question and back to the point of the question, the big three ERP software vendors have not, their their cloud solutions are not fully baked or fully developed in terms of having all the capabilities that they used to have in their on-premise solutions because they've had to rewrite the software in many cases for the cloud. Now, this, is, this comment is not true for products like NetSuite or Workday or Salesforce that are native cloud solutions. They were, they were always in the cloud. So you look at NetSuite. Well, Net, what I just said is not true for NetSuite because NetSuite started in the cloud 20 years ago. So what they have is what they've been building for 20 years and building on and improving for 20 years. But if you look at uh, SAP, for example, S4 HANA, um, S4 HANA is a rewrite of, of SAP's flagship solutions on the, ha on the HANA platform. And they just haven't, they just simply haven't moved everything over or uh, replicated everything that R3 and ECC, which are the two legacy SAP products or the, the two main ones, um, those capabilities have not been fully developed within S4 HANA yet. And that's why um, SAP, you know, over the last several years has gone out and buy and acquired uh, other other providers like Concur and Ariba and SuccessFactors and whatnot. Um, so yes, I do agree. I, I agree that SaaS and cloud solutions are not fully matured yet, um, but that comment is becoming less true over time and eventually it'll be a completely obsolete point. But for the time being, yes, I still do believe that, although I believe it maybe to a lesser degree than I did you know, two, three, four years ago.
You're listening to Transformation Ground Control, the podcast on all things technology agnostic. We're having a great Q&A session with our audience and CEO, Eric Kimberling. We will be right back with more questions after the break. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. We're in the midst of a Q&A around organizational change management strategies for 2023 with our CEO and founder, Eric Kimberling. So let's get back to some of these hot questions. Here's a great question from Kyler on LinkedIn, which is speaking of convince, how do you sell change management investments to an executive team? It's a great question because what I've seen time and time again over the years is you have this dynamic where an organization decides they're going to do digital transformation and they draw a line in the sand that says, this is our budget. This is our timeline. This is our scope. And from the, out of the gates, those are usually unrealistic expectations. Somehow, and, I, and I'll tell you what the somehow is here in a moment because it's, it's pretty clear, but somehow along the way, the organization got unrealistic expectations about what it was going to take to, um, to deploy technology. And so they, and the reason for that, by the way, is because the software vendors come in with their proposals that are overly optimistic. They have unrealistic assumptions, unrealistic uh, implementation implications, and organizations believe that. And they say, okay, well, if the software vendor tells me it's going to take 18 months and $10 million to implement the technology, that's my budget. It's 18 months and $10 million. Well, the problem in many cases, and I'd say in most cases, is that it was never going to be 18 months and $10 million. That just wasn't ever realistic. Maybe it was twice that. Maybe it was some other number greater than that. But because you had unrealistic expectations, now you get halfway through the project or at some point down the road in the middle of the project, you realize, wait a minute, this timeline is not going to happen and neither is this budget. And so two things start happening is one is you start going to ask for more money and more time, which is never pleasant for anyone. And that creates a bunch of turmoil and uh, internal uncertainty and loss of morale on the project team and things like that, which is a whole, you know, that's a conversation for another day. But the other thing that happens is you end up starting, starting to think about ways to cut cost and cut time and cut scope. And one of the first things to go inevitably is organizational change management because in theory, you can build software, you can test software, and you can deploy software without change management. You don't need it. Um, but if I need, if I feel like I need the software, there's something tangible that I can show for this big investment, I have to configure, I have to do the testing, I have to do all the technical stuff. The problem with that, of course, is that it doesn't matter that you deploy technology that works. Uh, what matters is that you deploy technology that works technically 
but it doesn't work for the business. And because you cut change management now, it's not going to work. It's just not going to work for the business. If you don't do change management well, you're going to end up with technology that might be perfect. It might be brilliant technology, best designed and deployed technology ever, but your organization's not using it. So does it really matter? You spent all this time and money on an implementation that delivers absolutely no business value because you're not using it. It doesn't align with your business. It's not supporting your goals and objectives. And that's the problem when you cut change management. And that goes back to those unrealistic expectations. So the key to start is, first of all, to understand realistically what is the project going to be. If you start there and have a realistic understanding of the time and cost it's going to take to deploy technology, then that's step one. You at least have a chance to succeed now because you have realistic expectations. You have a complete plan. You have a complete budget. Um, you're not trying to be something that's totally, you know, that's never been accomplished before. It's something that's actually realistic. Second thing then is to say within that budget and timeline in that overall strategy, what is the, what is the best change approach and strategy? And the change approach and strategy is what's going to enable you to get value and to get some sort of business benefit out of the investment that you're making. So the way I look at it is if you're spending, let's just go back to the $10 million number because that was the example I used before. But if you say it's two and a half years and it's a $10 million project, um, you might say, well, I'm going to invest 15 or 20% of that budget in change management. And an executive might say, well, but do we need to? I mean, that sounds like a, a nice to have or a touchy feely sort of a thing. My argument would be, well, do you want to get value out of this project or do you want it to be a money pit? Because those are really your options. If you don't invest in change management, it's going to be a money pit. In other words, you're going to invest in a bunch of great technology that doesn't deliver value and it's not going to get used by the organization. So if the answer is yes, I want to get business value. I want to get an ROI. I'm not just spending all this money just because I can you know, tell my peers that I have this great new technology, but I'm not using it. Um, and most executives, I would uh, argue are going to agree with that comment that yes, we want to get business value, then you better focus on change management. Now, knowing that time and resources and costs and budgets are limited, knowing that they're not infinite. Um, so in others, you have limited resources. You can't just, you know, have an open checkbook necessarily. Well, then you start saying, well, then what do we need to do to ensure that we invest appropriately in change management? And it might be, God forbid, that we cut back on some of the technology. We might scale back some of the techno technological investments in the name of investing more in change management, knowing that we're going to get more out of the investments we do make in technology. Um, so it, in other words, it's sort of a sort of like an insurance policy. We're going to buy and invest in a project with an insurance policy rather than buy and invest in a project that overinvests in technology, but has no safety net, no organizational consideration to ensure that it's going to be successful. Most executives, I think, are probably going to agree that they'd rather have one that delivers less technology, but more business value and more on the human side. Because let's face it, you can get a lot of business benefit without technology. There's a lot of things most organizations could do right now with the technology they have if they just invested in process improvements and uh, change management initiatives and redefining people's jobs, roles and responsibilities, clarifying uh, roles and responsibilities. All those things are going to lead to significant business value, even without technology. Now, certainly you want to add technology selectively where it's going to deliver even more business value and magnify that business value. But what you don't want to do is invest so much in technology that now you don't have a budget or the tolerance or the patience or the appetite for 
investing in change management as well. And, you know, here again is where I'll call the software industry out as part of the problem. And one of the culprits of this challenge is that they're, they're brilliant at giving you those end of quarter, end of year, end of month, end of week, end of day sorts of deals that say, if you sign this contract today, I'm going to throw in all this extra software uh, for a discounted rate. And now you're just investing more in the technology piece. And what I would advise most organizations to do, not all, but most, is to really think about how could I scale that back? How could I scale back the technological investment? How could I really focus and prioritize my technology investment? So I'm really focusing on the highest value opportunities within the organization. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to invest and double down on the change management to ensure that I get more out of those selective investments. That's going to be a lot more successful and probably going to deliver exponentially more business value than the organization that says, guess what? I got a great deal, end of week, end of month, end of quarter deal on all the software that I just bought that I'm never going to use. And now I don't have the resources, the time or the budget to be able to implement it well because I've committed so much to the, to the software itself. And by the way, in today's cloud pricing model, the more you commit to software, the more your ongoing long-term operating expenses are going to increase. And you're exposed to more vulnerabilities with with uh, contract escalators, cost escalators in the contracts. So you're actually you're in many ways you're sort of um, bogging down or weighing down the organization with future cost uh, implications, without having appropriately appropriately invested in the change management to ensure that the project is successful. So that's those are some of the things to think about in terms of how you convince your executive team. You want to make sure that you're thinking about it from a dollars and cents. Uh, perspective. And that's the thing about change management that I think that gets misunderstood is that people think it's something that's nice to have. It's something that if time permitting or cost permitting, yeah, we'll throw in some change management. My argument is change management is absolutely fundamental to success and not only getting a positive ROI and a positive return on your investment, but also the other big consideration or the big risk factor to sell to your executives is if we want to minimize operational disruption and minimize the chances or the odds of us not being able to ship product or not being able to complete customer orders, not being able to run payroll, uh, not being able to close the books. If we don't want those material operational disruptions, then we better invest in change management. If we don't invest in change management, there is absolutely no way you're going to be successful in deploying new technology, getting a positive ROI and avoiding some of the operational risks um, disruptions that organizations commonly feel or face. And by the way, uh, we've done research over the last close to 15 years now that shows a very steady metric in the digital transformation space, which is that anywhere from, I think it's 51 to 53% over the years, it's tracked right in that 50% mark or just over that 50% mark, that just over 50% of digital transformations deliver a material operational disruption at the time of go live. In other words, they can't ship product, they can't close the books, they can't run payroll, uh, they can't process customer orders, something that brings the company to a halt. Um, not just, it was a little bit bumpy, it's more, no, we can't ship product, we're losing revenue, we're losing profit. So 50% or more of digital transformations not only don't deliver business value, but they, worse yet, they impose or deliver a negative result to the organization and it's a negative financial result. So that's another great way to sell, especially to a CFO or someone that's thinking a lot about risk mitigation and things of that nature. Let's not be part of that 51 or 53%. Let's be the, the percent that not only avoids that operational disruption, but can actually deliver 
uh, positive business value longer term. So hopefully that gives you a, a few ideas on how to sell uh, sell the the different uh, aspects of, of change to executives. Here's another question from Sultan on LinkedIn. How can we measure the change? And this is a great question. And, and uh, there's a lot of different ways you can measure change. Uh, first of all, first and foremost, one of the things we do at third stage with our clients is we will um, we will conduct an organizational assessment. So we'll assess and measure different components of the organization's culture. And we're doing it in a way to not only identify where the pockets of resistance might be within the organization, and we want to anticipate those pockets of human resistance, but we're also doing it so we can track progress over time. So we can see repeatedly over time throughout the transformation, how are we tracking? How are we trending? What are the new risks that are evolving? Where are we being successful in our change efforts and where are we not? So there's a quantitative factor and a qualitative factor to those organizational assessments that can be extremely powerful and provide you a good roadmap or a good um, understanding of how uh, change management is affecting the organization. Um, but you can also use things like, um, you know, certainly competency ratings in terms of, you know, looking at metrics around how many people have completed the end user training, um, how many people have uh, been through the process of uh, understanding what their new processes and their new job roles are going to be. Um, you know, you want to measure that and understand how many people have we actually touched and been involved with and had conversations around what their new roles are going to look like, just so you know, and you can measure, you know, sort of the bread box of who you've impacted and, and who you haven't. So there's, there's uh, several ways like that, that you can, you can actually turn something that, again, is largely perceived to be a touchy feely, um, intangible sort of a thing like change management. You can actually turn that into something that's more quantitative, similar to the, the question, the previous question around executives and how to sell the value to executives. We've got to get out of that touchy-feely, kumbaya, uh, ivory tower way of thinking about change management and think about it more from a from a hands-on, um, ROI-focused, tangible, uh, business value-focused function. And if we do that and we do focus on change management as something that can be measured, then we're going to be a lot more successful that way. It's a lot of really good questions here. Um, that, that are worth worth commenting on here. Um, here's another question from Kyler on LinkedIn. How is change management different in a cloud migration implementation? Um, I wouldn't say the change management is necessarily different. It's just that the changes themselves are going to be different and the changes you're trying to enable are going to be different. But the process you go through and the tools you use and the uh, diagnostics that you use, all that stuff um, is going to be similar. You're just going to use it in a different way and you might have a different weighting of you know what you focus on. But what I'd say is in, in cloud situations, again, the, the chances are higher that your processes are going to have to change more materially to fit the software than if, you know, in a, in a pre-cloud environment. So that being the case, that just means now we've got to figure out how to ensure that people understand um, how uh, the technology is going to change their business and how, you know, how we can ensure that we are, are uh, addressing that appropriately. So, um, so yeah, I, I think it's just more the type of change we're gonna we're gonna see as well. So I, I appreciate too. One thing uh, as we're talking, you'll see that uh, Kyler and Third Stage Consulting are dropping in the chat. They're dropping some additional resources 
um, that might help you. But one one thing that um, we have on our website, and I'll ask Kyler and our team to drop this in the chat as well, is that on our website, if you go to the resource center, there's a, a guide to organizational change management. And in that guide, it's a it's a pretty extensive guide that talks about all the different things you should be thinking about and the different tactics and strategies you should be using um, to sort of create and tailor a change strategy and plan that fits your needs. But if you go to our website, you can download that guide. And that's probably a good sort of follow-up action item or takeaway here from today's conversation is to download that guide, read through it, um, and hopefully that stimulates some additional questions in, in conversation. Um, and uh, so I encourage you to check check that out as well. Um, you can also check my YouTube channel too. Again, if you just go to my YouTube channel and search change management or just type in the word change, you're going to find a ton of uh, change management videos. And we've got a, I've got a playlist too on my channel that's focused exclusively on um, change management. I want to cover this question too, because it's a really good one. Um, I'm going to have to take it off the screen so I can read the whole thing here in a second. But this is from Nancy on LinkedIn. And she says, what advice would you, what advice would you give when a digital transformation initiative is being initiated, yet there's no clear vision on what the scope that'll be? It's basically assigning resources to investigate where we can improve processes, um, add machine learning or AI. And is it a risk adverse company? And you are asked to lead change management and come up with a change management plan. Well, um, so the question is, how do you how do you define that that uh, change when there's no clear scope? Well, I mean, obviously, first and foremost, you have to define what the scope is and, and understand what those what those uh, implications are. But I, I'd say, you know, one thing that's important and one good thing about being in a position where you're asked to lead the change, but the scope hasn't been defined. I think that's actually a good spot to be in because even though there's a lot of ambiguity and uncertainty and things that are not yet defined, involving change resources and people that are focused on change management from the very start is absolutely the best way to do a project like this. So the fact that you're having this discussion and this question is actually a good thing in my opinion. So, but that doesn't answer your question. It, it does tell you that you're, I think you're in the right spot, but now what do you do? So I'd say two things. One is I, I wouldn't necessarily just wait for the scope to be defined by someone other than the change management team. I would ensure that the change management team has some sort of say and some, some sort of influence over what the scope is. Because again, we have to think of it not just from a technological perspective of what module should we be we be deploying or what systems should we be deploying we also have to think about it from the perspective of what um what is the impact of the organization and how much change are we really willing to take on and so if change management can be part of the decision the decision making process to decide and help define what the scope is in a way that aligns with the overall goals and objectives of the business then that's just going to ensure that you're not just being handed a change management problem that now you have to fix you're actually part of creating what the change management scope is and what the overall scope of the project is going to be. And I think that's the way most or more organizations should think about this sort of thing is that they should be thinking about, um, you know, what is our culture today and how much do we want to bend the culture? Um, how much of an impact or how much change do we really want to take on? If we want to take on bigger change or maybe push our boundaries of how much change we're willing to uh, consume, that's okay, but now we just need to recognize that, okay, that's a risk though. We need to really hone in on change management even more than we would otherwise. Or it could be that the change management team influences a throttling back of expectations because guess what? We're not going to change our culture overnight and we're a risk adverse organization. We're a highly tenured organization that's pretty set in its ways. Change is just going to be harder. doesn't mean we don't want to tackle it, but it just means 
taking on a huge jump, a huge quantum leap is probably less likely to be successful than if we were to take a more incremental improvement. So I think change management needs to provide that um, that perspective or that lens to analyze the overall digital strategy and make some of those key decisions early on. So I think that's a great, a great position to, to be in. Thank you so much to Eric and thank you so much to our audience for those great questions. You can continue to engage with that chat on wherever you are viewing or listening from and we will get back to you and answer your questions. We are going to, in our next segment, um, feature some of our scary stories to celebrate the Halloween holiday around ERP failures and how you can best mitigate your risk of digital transformation failures. So with that, we will be right back to transfer ground control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. We just finished up a Q&A around change management with our CEO and founder, Eric Kimberling. And now we are going to go into some top ERP failures and some reasons around why digital transformations fail. We're actually going to play you um, two videos that Eric is going to take us through. And he's going to talk about the top 10 ERP failures of all time as well as why digital transformations fail from an organizational side and a technical side. So stay tuned for those great clips and we'll go ahead and roll with the top 10 ERP failures of all time. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm the CEO of Third Stage Consulting. We're an independent consulting firm that helps clients through their digital transformation journeys. And this top 10 list was hard to compile because there's a lot to choose from. There's a lot of big failures in the marketplace. We're going to talk today about the top 10 based on just severity of failure and more importantly, the ones that we feel could have been avoided probably the most. Now, we and myself in particular often act as expert witnesses in lawsuits. Many of these cases involve lawsuits. Some of the cases we were involved with as expert witnesses and some of them we weren't. But in either case, we're sharing publicly available information and we're not sharing any confidential information that we may have gathered from the lawsuits as, as expert witnesses. So without further ado, let's get started. Coming in at number 10 is Haribo. They're the company that make gummy bears. Maybe number 10 on our list, it's actually number one on my kids' list because they love gummy bears and they weren't happy to learn that gummy bears were largely unavailable for a period of time in 2018 after their SAP implementation. And the general gist and summary of what happened here is they spent hundreds of millions of dollars trying to implement SAP in 2018. They finally sort of implemented SAP and immediately they ran into supply chain problems. They couldn't track where their inventory was. They couldn't track raw materials. They couldn't get the inventory to stores in time. 
And as a result, their sales dropped roughly 25% shortly after the transformation. So these problems are enough to land Haribo at number 10 on our list. Coming in at number nine is Washington Community College. This company or this organization tried to implement PeopleSoft in 2012 or beginning in 2012, and they hired Cyber to help implement the product. And the tricky part and the unfortunate part of this project is that Cyber filed for bankruptcy and went out of business at the time of the implementation, and the college was left holding the bag and holding the end result, which wasn't pretty. So once Cyber went out of business, they were acquired by a company called HDC who resumed the project, but they eventually canceled the project. And keep in mind, this is HDC, the vendor canceled the project, not the college. The vendor canceled the project and sued the college for $13 million, saying that the reason that the project failed is because they had internal dysfunctions that couldn't be overcome. So this is a very rare situation where the failure was probably the result of both parties, but in this case, the system integrator was actually the one to sue the college. But in either case, the college spent a lot of time and money and now is dealing with a lawsuit in an implementation that's delivering little business value to the college and to its students. Coming in at number eight is Hewlett-Packard, the technology and hardware company. Now, Hewlett-Packard spent $160 million on their ERP project. The project cost $160 million, but the damages to the company that they claim were caused as a result of the failed implementation were nearly five times that amount. So they spent $160 million expecting to get a certain ROI, but in this case, they actually lost five times that amount, which isn't the type of ROI that most of us are looking for when we go to implement new technology. And one of the interesting quotes from the CIO of HP at that time, he said, we had a series of small problems, none of which individually would have been too much to handle, but together they created the perfect storm. And that pretty well sums up what happens with a lot of these failures. And that certainly was enough to land Hewlett Packard at number eight on our list. Coming in at number seven is Waste Management, another company that tried to implement SAP to no avail. And Waste Management spent around $100 million, according to public records, on their SAP implementation, and it ultimately failed. SAP had promised that Waste Management would get annual benefits somewhere in the neighborhood of $100 to $200 million per year, but those business benefits never materialized and resulted in a failure uh, on the part of Waste Management. One of the key challenges that Waste Management alleges that they had with this project was that SAP misrepresented the software that was being offered to them. And they said that they were being demoed fake software. So the demos weren't the real software that SAP really had available according to public records and, and quotes from people from Waste Management. So that was one of the interesting allegations is that when Waste Management sued SAP, they alleged that SAP didn't demo properly the, the real software that they're actually going to be getting. Coming in at number six in our list is Hershey's. Hershey's tried to implement SAP. They spent quite a bit of money on their implementation. And what they found at the time of their go live is that they were incapable of processing roughly $100 million of orders for Hershey's Kisses and Jolly Ranchers. 
And again, this is another one that may only be number six on our list, but it's definitely in my kids' top three because they love candy. So some of the problems that Hershey's ran into is that they tried to implement the product, the SAP product, in an unreasonably short period of time. And in fact, just from the outside looking in, it looks and sounds like it was never going to happen. And those unrealistic expectations caused the first domino to fall, which led to a lot of other problems later on throughout the implementation. And finally, one of the biggest mistakes, if not the biggest mistakes that Hershey's made along with their, their implementation partners is that they decided to go live during a busy holiday season when chocolate is most readily bought by customers. And so this was a case where the implementation planning wasn't very well thought out, or if it was thought out, the risks were, were not well mitigated. And it's just a good reminder that we need to think long and hard about when we go live, how it affects our day-to-day -day business, as a way to ensure that we don't run into operational disruptions, something that I'll talk more about at the end of today's video. Coming in at number five on our list is Miller Coors, the beer company, and they also struggled with their ERP implementation. They started their SAP implementation in 2013 and spent roughly $100 million on the project. And as a result of the implementation, they're suing their system integrator, which was HCL in this case, the Indian-based firm, and they're suing for $100 million in damages, trying to recover the damages that were resulting from this SAP implementation. Now, the really interesting thing about this to add insult to injury is that HCL's response publicly to the lawsuit was a bit flippant. Uh, their response was, it's just one client. We have several other reference clients available for every one client that has something bad to say about us. So I wasn't involved in this project. I don't know the inside details, but it sounds a bit like uh, there's, there's some finger pointing going on there. But either way, it's something that uh, could have been avoided, and we'll talk more at the end of this video on how to avoid some of those failures. But that's enough to land Miller Coors uh, within our top 10. Coming in at number four is Revlon, the consumer product company. They had an SAP project recently, and the interesting thing about this is they announced it in a financial filing. That's how the news of the failure broke uh, to the markets, and the markets didn't respond well. Their stock dropped about 6.9% the day after that filing and the announcement that their SAP project had failed. Now, just a little background on this, and this is really interesting. If you go read the financial filing and the SEC filing, they actually outline in a fair amount of detail what happened with this SAP implementation. So it's really interesting to go read uh, because they're basically explaining what happened and why it had the effect it did on the business. But in a nutshell, to paraphrase some of what they said in that filing is that they first went live with one of their manufacturing plants in North Carolina. And the minute they went live, they weren't able to ship product, they lost customer orders, they lost visibility to their supply chain, and it essentially brought that plant to its knees and it wasn't able to, to manufacture, distribute, or sell products anymore, at least in the short term, after the go-live. And the other interesting thing is because of some of those challenges, they had to expedite shipments. So as they were tracking customer orders and as customers were complaining about late orders, they were spending a lot of money expediting shipments for their customers. Another interesting aspect and another contributing factor to this failure is that at the time they were implementing SAP, they had just recently acquired the company Elizabeth Arden and they were trying to figure out how they were going to integrate that company into the core Revlon operations at the same time they're trying to implement SAP. So here they are trying to implement a new technology at the same time they're just trying to figure out how to fit together all of their operations 
and it created somewhat of a moving target, it sounds like, in terms of how that transformation was going to go. So when we talk about ERP successes or failures, one of the big indicators is ROI. What kind of return on investment did we get for the time and cost and money that we put into the implementation? In the case of Revlon, it wasn't so great. There's a negative ROI in the form of lost sales, lost customer value or lost customer service. There is a intangible number that they didn't quantify, but they said that there was a material effect on the executive's time and the amount of time they had to spend trying to recover this and deal with all the problems that resulted from that implementation. So I don't know how you quantify that, but that sounds like it's pretty significant. There's also an increase in capital costs, increase in operating expenditures. They couldn't pay their vendors. Uh, they couldn't uh, file their regulatory requirements and regulatory reports to the, to the state and federal regulators. They had to expedite shipments and they lost sales. So a lot of problems in that implementation and certainly enough to land it among the top ERP failures of all time. Coming in at number three on our list is Nike, the well-known consumer product company that many of you may buy from. And the company spent $400 million to upgrade their ERP systems recently. And that didn't go so well, obviously, or they wouldn't be on the list. But some of the business damages that resulted from the implementation were that the company had to take a loss of around $100 million, or they wrote off $100 million of that implementation. The stock price dropped by around 20%, according to one outlet that we, we reviewed in preparing for this. And the company had to invest another five years and another $400 million to get the project on track and to make the project successful. Now, from what we understand, again, outside looking in and, and what we see in the public forums, is it sounds like the, the project is back on track and they're getting value out of their ERP system. But the big question is, did they need to spend that much money? Was it worth the heartache? Could they have done it better? And they, could they have optimized the way that they went through the transformation? So these end results that we see here are enough to land Nike at number three. Coming in at number two is National Grid, the large utility company in the US. National Grid, invested over a billion dollars on their SAP implementation. And yes, I said a billion, not a million or any other number, but $1 billion plus on their SAP implementation, and it failed. The reason we can say with certainty that it failed were some of the results that they also publicly announced and that was widely reported in the media as a result of their go live. Some of the metrics that came out of the company as a result were that, uh, for example, the company had to spend $100 million in services to support the implementation after the fact. So after they went live, they spent another $100 million just supporting and stabilizing the system as it was rolled out. They also had two system integrators. They had Wipro involved, and actually they filed a lawsuit against Wipro. And you can find in, on my YouTube channel a whole video that talks just about the National Grid versus Wipro lawsuit. But they had Wipro, whom they sued, and they also ended up bringing in Ernst & Young, a second system integrator and a second expensive integrator to help uh, support the implementation because it wasn't going well with Wipro. By the end of the project, the company was spending about $30 million a month just supporting the project and trying to get the product up and running and to get through the implementation, which for any size company is just a ridiculous amount of money to be spending on trying to implement new technology. In addition, some of the end results of their operations after Go Live. Their, their whole process for the period end closed used to take four days before they rolled out the new ERP system. It took 43 days after they went live. So definitely a negative ROI there after spending all that money. 
And then finally, their post-go-live accounts payable processes resulted in about 15,000 unpaid supplier invoices that they just couldn't process and they couldn't pay. So they had a lot of suppliers and vendors that weren't very happy with them at the time. And all of these end results are enough to land national grid amongst the top of our top 10. Coming in at number one on our list is the United States Navy. That is the military branch within the U.S. military that spent over a billion dollars on their ERP implementation since 1998. In fact, I think this project is still going on from what I understand. But at the time of the most recent data that was available, they had already spent over a billion dollars on their ERP project. And they had three big system integrators helping them. They had IBM, they had Deloitte, they had EDS, who I think is no longer a business. But they had those three companies helping them. And according to a GAO report, which is a regulatory company that, that looks at accountability and oversight for the government, they put out a report saying that there were still no material improvements to the organization as a result of this billion dollar project. And the other interesting thing is that they had reduced the scope of the project to not be covering the entire supply chain and financials, but just to focus on the financial component of their business. So in other words, they cut from their scope the whole shipyard inventory management piece of it. And despite cutting the scope significantly, they still spent over a billion dollars and still had trouble uh, with the project, which by the way also uh, affected 90,000 employees. So there are 90,000 employees that were stuck trying to deal with this, this new system that apparently didn't deliver a lot of value to the organization. And like I said, they are still implementing the product and this is the reason why the U.S. Navy's ERP implementation comes in at number one on our list. So what gives? Why did these projects fail? And more importantly, what can we do to avoid this type of disaster? Or more likely, how can we avoid a more moderate failure that we're not going to read about in the news, but still becomes painful for our organization? How can we navigate those pitfalls? And what is it we can do to avoid this type of failure? Well, first is to choose the right software. Make sure you've got the right technology supporting your business and that you're not choosing software and implementing software in a biased way. The second thing is to choose the right system integrator. Make sure you have the right partner or partners helping you implement. Um, just because it's a big name or a well-known name system integrator doesn't mean that you're immune to failure or that you won't get fired or that your project won't fail. And if you look at the top 10 list here from today, you'll notice that there's a lot of big name system integrators and well-respected system integrators that were involved in those failures. And in some cases, they're involved in litigation as a result. Another thing to do is to remember that you are in charge of your project. This is your project. It's not the software vendors. It's not your system integrators. And you need to do what you need to do to make this project successful. If your system integrator isn't working out, course correct. Either give them clear direction on what you expect from them or fire them if you need to, bring in additional help, whatever it is you need. And also make sure that you're the one mitigating risks and identifying risks. System integrators generally aren't very good at mitigating risks and identifying where the risks are because they're the, the fox guarding the hen house, so to speak. So you need to have independent risk mitigation as part of this whole concept of making sure that you're in charge and you do what you need to do to make the project successful. The other thing to remember is that operational disruption is your biggest risk and potentially your biggest cost for the implementation. Too often companies will cut corners and step over dollars to pick up pennies and what they'll do is they'll underinvest in things like organizational change management. They'll try to unreasonably compress the timeline and they'll cut the budget. And they'll do this all in the name of saving money and thinking that they're increasing ROI. 
But what they aren't looking at is what's going to happen on the other side when they go live and this materially affects their business. Generally, the companies that have operational disruptions find that that money lost and spent after go live is a lot more damaging than the money they could have spent to get it right in the first place early on in the implementation. Another tip is to focus on business process management. Define what you want your business processes and your operations to look like. Define your business blueprint and let that drive your transformation. Don't fall into the trap of deferring to the technology and assuming the technology is going to allow you or help you figure out how to run your business. You need to determine how your business processes need to look. That will help you define how your technology can best support your business. Along those same lines, we should also be focused on user acceptance testing. Make sure that we thoroughly test the product and thoroughly test our business processes and really stress test the overall solution and the end-to-end -end business processes. Each of these failures shouldn't have happened and they wouldn't have happened if they had a stringent and effective user acceptance testing process that would have identified these problems before they go live and it affects their business. So it gets back to the concept of you owning this, you running this as a business. User acceptance testing is no exception. It's something that could have been avoided had the companies been through the process and been effective in their user acceptance testing. So that's something that we recommend that you have an independent third party, someone outside the system integrator, help navigate and help facilitate uh, in your process. The next thing is executive leadership. Make sure that your executives are involved, they're bought in, they roll up their sleeves and help make some of the decisions that need to be made as part of the transformation and that they are well informed of what's happening in the project and aware of the risks. That's a big problem that we see with executives is they don't necessarily know what the risks are, partly because they're not being involved enough as they should be, but also partly because the project team either doesn't know or isn't sharing what some of the real risks are and some of those real decisions that need to be made and some of those decision trade-offs that need to be made as well. And then finally, make sure you have independent technology agnostic support to help you through the digital transformation. That's one of the best things you can do to ensure that you keep your project on track, you don't have the fox guarding the hen house, and that you're doing what's best for you as a business, not necessarily what's best for your software vendor or system integrator. Companies like our team at Third Stage is one such example that can help you through that transformation. So I hope you found this information helpful. If you'd like more information, I encourage you to download our annual report on the state of the ERP industry, which shares some emerging trends and best practices in ERP implementations. It'll help you in your journey along the way. Download that in the description field below. You'll find a link. Also encourage you to please like the video, assuming you did like it, and also share any comments you have. What failures did we miss? What other uh, top failures are you aware of that should have made the list? And what are some of the key things that you see as failure points or keys to success that I didn't talk about here in this video? Love to hear your comments below, so please provide that. And I uh, hope you found this helpful and look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you. You are listening to Transformation Ground Control. We just covered a video around the top 10 ERP failures of all time in celebration of our scary stories and Halloween episode here at Third Stage Consulting Group. We are going to transition to a video around why transformations fail and what you can do as an organization to ensure your project is successful. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, 
and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organisations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, the podcast around all things technology agnostic and independent. We are going to switch into another video from our CEO and founder, Eric Kimberling, and he is going to discuss the main reasons why digital transformation projects fail and how you can ensure that your project is optimized for success. Research shows that 70% or more of digital transformations fail, but what isn't commonly understood is why transformations fail. And unfortunately, transformations often fail due to the internal behaviors and psychology of organizations. That's exactly what I want to talk about here today. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm the CEO of Third Stage Consulting. We're an independent consulting firm that helps clients throughout the world reach their third stage of digital transformation success. And as I mentioned, digital transformations fail more often than they succeed. It's easy to blame software vendors, it's easy to blame your technical implementers or your consultants, but there's a whole host of things and behaviors that organizations do to themselves to contribute to failure. Now first, it helps to understand three common themes in digital transformation failures. These are things that we see whenever we help clients recover their failed projects and or in our expert witness practice supporting ERP or digital transformation related lawsuits. And those three things are organizations have unrealistic expectations for what the transformation entails. Secondly, they commonly have internal misalignment. So the executive team and the project team are misaligned with what the overall project is going to look like. And then thirdly, resistance to change. That's another reason why digital transformation so commonly fail. So these are three common patterns we see in digital transformation failures. So what I want to do today is talk about how organizations and their internal teams can overcome these three common patterns of digital transformation failure, and more importantly, understand what it is that you don't want to do internally to contribute to the digital transformation failure. The first thing that organizations often do to contribute to their own digital transformation failure is that they don't have a clear vision of their future state. They don't understand what their future state business processes are. They don't understand what roles and responsibilities in the organization is going to look like overall. They don't understand how technology is going to tie together with other types of technology within the organization. And so without this clear vision or future state of what it is they want to be when they grow up, organizations end up falling victim to the three common patterns I talked about at the beginning of the video. They have unrealistic expectations, they're not aligned, and they experience resistance to change. Those three things are often a result of the fact that the organization itself did not have a clear understanding and a clear definition of what they wanted their future state to be. So one way to work around this and ensure that you don't fall prey to this trap is to ensure that you do a couple things. The first thing you wanna to do to ensure that you avoid this problem 
is ensure that you define and take the time to really plan out what your future state business processes are gonna look like, what organizational roles and responsibilities are gonna look like, what your overall system architecture and landscape is going to look like, and really have a clear blueprint for that future state. Now, ideally, and in a perfect world, you would do much of this work as part of your software evaluation and selection process, but at the very least, you wanna start doing this before you start designing, building, and deploying technology throughout your organization. So it's important to sort of take that step back and slow down right as you're getting started on the transformation to ensure you have a clear vision of that future state. And when you have that clearer vision of the future state, that's gonna help ensure that you have a realistic plan. It ensures that you're aligned internally and it helps mitigate the risk of resistance to change. So those three patterns I mentioned at the beginning of the video are largely mitigated by the fact that you have this clear vision and this clear plan for what you wanna be when you grow up. A second organizational dynamic and psychological behavior of an organization that commonly contributes to digital transformation failure is this tendency to want to delegate to the project team. And while it's important to have a project team, you want to make sure you have many people involved in your transformation, ranging from the project core team to subject matter experts, etc. You don't want to over-delegate without having clear direction, clear parameters, clear project governance for that project team. Reason for this is because too often, executive teams have a grand vision of what they want their organization to look like and how the digital transformation can support that long-term strategy and vision. But then the project team ends up executing in a way that's misaligned because they've been delegated to, but they haven't been given clear direction or clear parameters for how that transformation will support the overall strategy and objectives of the organization. So the first step in mitigating this risk is to ensure that you have a strategy articulation map laid out for what your strategic goals and objectives are as an organization and how that translates into specific goals and objectives and tactics for your digital transformation. And that's something you should do as part of your planning phase before you ever start the transformation. In an ongoing basis, you wanna make sure that you have regular checkpoints with your executive steering committee and that your executive steering committee is involved in key decisions or at the very least blessing and approving key decisions. That's another way to ensure that you aren't over-delegating without the right checks and balances internally within the organization. So by deploying some of these strategies and tactics I mentioned here, this will avoid that dynamic of having a project team that gets misaligned with the overall goals and objectives of the organization and its executive team, and it'll also ensure that you mitigate some of the other risks that we've talked about throughout this video. Just as many organizations are guilty of over-delegating the project success to a project team, organizations also tend to over-delegate project success and activities to the technical implementers. This could be your software vendor, it could be evaluated reseller, could be a system integrator, could be some sort of third-party consultant or some combination of all the above. And while you do need these third parties to be successful because they are the outside experts that you want to lean on to help make your project successful, you wanna find the right balance between leveraging their capabilities and bringing in those skill sets onto your team, but also taking ownership and making sure that your team is becoming self-sufficient and competent in their own way. And it's a tricky balancing act. It's easier said than done. But organizations that take the time to really invest in their own people and maybe shift some of the focus from the technical implementer back to their internal resources are going to find a couple of key benefits that help mitigate failure. 
For example, by not being over-dependent on a system implementer, you're inherently creating a situation where you have more ownership and more buy-in and more acceptance of change. So in other words, the changes aren't just happening to the organization as a result of a third party, it's actually being owned and managed by your internal resources. It also ensures that you don't have that resistance to change. When people don't feel as though the changes are being forced upon them by some sort of outside party, they're going to own the change and they're gonna be more open to the change. So you've started to mitigate some of the risk of change management and resistance to change. So these are just a couple examples of the benefits of why you don't want to over-delegate to technical implementers. And when we look at troubled implementations that we've been involved with in helping them recover the implementations and or providing expert witness testimony in digital transformation related lawsuits, we find that organizations in those troubled situations more often than not have over delegated or become overly dependent on their technical implementers. The more successful implementations on the other hand are the ones that find that right balance between leveraging outside help but also building the internal competencies and ownership that they need to make the project successful. The next organizational dynamic that organizations typically fall into that contributes to risk and failure of their digital transformation is a lack of program management and program governance. And I use the word program instead of the word project because it is a program. You want to have a program manager that's internal that focuses on managing all the different work streams within a transformation. For example, you have your technical implementer or implementers, you have your change management team, you have your core project team, you have your system architects, you have your technical types, a lot of different internal and external resources and work streams that need to be managed. And the problem is most organizations tend to think that we're just gonna have the system implementer manage the overall project. And yes, they are gonna manage their technical work stream for their particular technology, but you can't depend on a system implementer to do the change management, the process improvement, the data migration, the system architecture, all the things that go into a successful project. And all of those different pieces need to come together under one umbrella of program management and program governance. Now, if you're a larger organization that happens to have an internal PMO department, a program management office, then you may have the advantage of already having the internal competency to be able to manage complex projects like this. If on the other hand, you don't have an internal PMO, you can start building that sort of competency and capability even with outside help, you can start to build that competency to help manage the project more successfully and more effectively so that ultimately you finish the project on time and on budget and you're not dependent on an outside third party to ensure that the project is successful. Now the final organizational dynamic that we commonly see with organizations that struggle with their digital transformation is the inability to recognize risks throughout the transformation. In other words, they see the positive, they see the things that are going well, but they don't know enough to understand, comprehend, and quantify the risks that are underlying the project. Now, part of this is because most organizations don't do digital transformations on a regular basis. It's not their full-time job. It's not typically what they're good at. And then you add to the fact that you're bringing in outside third parties via software vendors and system implementers that are incentivized to focus on the positive and really protect their revenue streams, they're gonna paint an overly optimistic picture for you, which further contributes to the problem. So you really need to add a dose of reality and a dose of skepticism 
to your project to really understand where the risks are and start to anticipate those risks before they become a problem. Too often organizations wait until they've reached a failure point or until the project comes to a grinding halt to fully recognize and realize how significant the risks of digital transformation are. So the key is to recognize those risks well before they become problems and start to mitigate those risks along the way. And that's something that independent, technology agnostic, and neutral third parties like Third Stage can help you do. So these are a few of the dynamics that we see within organizations in terms of the internal psychology and the internal behavior that leads to digital transformation failure. By following these tips, we hope that you'll be able to mitigate some of these challenges and risk and really go in with your eyes wide open to be able to avoid some of those failure points that many organizations face. Now for more best practices and more tips and lessons from other digital transformations, I encourage you to download our annual digital transformation report. It's an annual report we publish each year that focuses on software rankings and independent reviews of different technologies, as well as implementation best practices to ensure that your project ultimately is successful. So check out the links below to download that white paper and resource. And I've also included links below in the description field to other resources as well. So be sure to check that out as well. So I hope you found this information useful and hope you have a great day. Well, great stuff from Eric and definitely some great tips and tricks. Just a reminder that you can get all of that content on his YouTube channel and you can subscribe to hear new episodes of Transformation Ground Control every Wednesday. We're going to jump back in and talk to Eric and kind of debrief after he's listened to those videos back and see if he has any other great insights for us to talk about how you avoid digital transformation failure. aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, Contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, the podcast, all things technology agnostic. We're here with Eric Kimberling. And Eric, you kind of took us through those top 10 ERP failures of all time. Is there any that you would add to the list since you did that video or maybe a favorite that you feel like has really resonated with you uh, since kind of profiling how those major global businesses had had a very public and expensive digital transformation failure? Yeah, and unfortunately, to answer your first question, there's always, it seems like there's always new ones that could be added to the list. I just heard of one the other day. Someone uh, tweeted it to me, I believe, or, or actually, as I, one of our team members actually forwarded me the article, but it was a uh, human capital management failure with some government entity somewhere. I think it was in the US, but I'm not sure. But it was like a billion dollar um, human capital management deployment gone wrong that they pulled the plug on. Um, and so, you know, that's one that would probably be up there, even though I can't remember what the organization was. It was a big government entity, though. Um, so, yeah, there's always, you know, new potential entrants into the top 10 list. 
But I'd say the one to answer is probably easier to answer your other one, which is what was your favorite. Um, I'd say the, the Hershey's one is probably my favorite failure of all time, just because it was such a dramatic case study of all the things you shouldn't do, beginning with the strategy of when you go live and what your contingency plans are. If things don't go well, it go live. And those are two things that Hershey's did very poorly in that case study. And, and just to recap, they, they went live on new technology right at a peak uh, chocolate buying season. I think it was mm -hmm. Easter, if I remember correctly. Yes, and it they, was. Yep. Was it what it was? Um, but you know, it's just, a, it's, it's all the things that you, it's sort of like a nightmare that you, you a nightmare scenario where for some reason, someone at Hershey's made that decision to go live right when they needed the system to be functional the most. And it did exactly the opposite of that. So that's one that sort of stands out as a train wreck, but, um, yeah, that there's, there's others I could choose as well, but that's the first one that, that sticks out. Yeah, absolutely. And and you do a lot of expert witness work with our team here at Third Stage. Um, if our audience didn't know, basically businesses will call us or lawyers if they're going through some sort of litigation or um, lawsuit with um, a variety of different partners. So Eric gets kind of a front row seat to those those different types of failures, which is why he's able to take kind of those core findings and bring them to the third stage clients to ensure that nobody is ever involved in that when it comes to lawsuits. So Eric, when you kind of see all of these different aspects of failure, could you peg a number one thing or a number one initiative or aspect of a project strategy that will ultimately lead to failure? I think the biggest one is... Well, I, I guess it would, I have to give it a toss up. It's between two things that, you know, they're both right. I'd say dead heats. One is change management. That's one that historically I've always said is a, is a huge um, failure point. If you don't manage change well, um, then you're going to have failure. But you could argue that one that's even more fundamental because part of the reason why organizations don't take change management seriously or don't invest enough in change management is because they don't have realistic expectations to begin with. So a lot of times it's that those unrealistic expectations that then lead to um, that lead to challenges later, including the desire or the tendency to want to cut change management. So somewhere between misaligned or uh, unrealistic expectations, change management, and then a third one I have to throw it in is misalignment. If your organization is misaligned, if you're not on the same page with what direction you're going and what you want to get out of the project then the project's going to fail. Although that one, I could say you can address that via change management. So maybe you set that one aside and say that's more of a symptom of not having good change management. So those are the, those are the ones that come to mind is the most important, the most urgent. And when you get to that point where you are, say, a large global organization and you're going through a failure that you know is going to become public or completely disrupt your operations in the Hershey example, be very similar to our Halloween theme. If there was no candy, you know, it, it would be a, a very sad Halloween for a lot of kids. But how do you address that as a leadership team? Like, do you just completely start over or do you get in head, ahead of it from the PR communication side? What would be kind of your your first step, if you were the CEO of Hershey's and you kind of saw this happening, what would you do? Well, if I saw it happening, I'd probably call an audible or a timeout and say, we're not going live, uh, you know, a few months before peak season. 
Um, and I would also, I'd want to know, you know, what is, what's the risk mitigation plan? I mean, what's our backup if something does go wrong? And if I hear things like, don't worry, things won't go wrong, then that's a big red flag that is not realistic. Um, so I'd, those are a couple things that come to mind is I'd, I'd want to know, I'd want to know what the contingency plan is. And I probably just wouldn't, I, I don't think under any circumstances should Hershey's have gone live at that time, even if they were 99% confident that they had everything under control. It's just not worth the risk. You'd be better off just delaying until after your peak season when you have a lull in demand. That's the time where you'd be more likely to want to go live. Absolutely. That that makes a lot of, of sense. So so going along with kind of our scary stories, campfire, ghost stories um, theme, I wonder if you could give us kind of the top line worst project you've ever been on. You don't have to say names, obviously, or anything like that. Um, but if you can think about the the worst implementation or digital transformation project you've been on, what are some some core traits <laughs> of that project? If it's not too much of a trigger for you to kind of talk about, yeah, I'd say you know it's it's interesting because it's one that was like the best and the worst at the same time. I think it was worst for the project and for the company, um, but it was one of the best for me just because I learned so much from it, uh, being part of this. I don't want to call it a bad experience, but it was a, I'd say a poorly run implementation. And, and, you know, the reason it was poorly run is because it was a, it, first of all, it's a big multinational consumer product company. Um, they are, or were at the time, a consumer product company that were going through a lot of private equity, um, handoffs. So they had been bought and sold a few times by different private equity groups. They were public, then brought private to private equity a couple different times and they were trying to go public again. So there's a lot of uh, turmoil in the company. So they were, they had a lot of issues. They were in a, in a market that was getting slaughtered and they, they just weren't doing well within an already struggling industry vertical. And you add to the fact that ownership's changing hands, the executive team was turning over repeatedly. And at the same time you come in and you try and implement SAP, uh, which is a, a leading ERP system. And it just was in a, it was sort of a situation where it just wasn't going to succeed because of all the turmoil that was happening internally at the company. So it just took a lot of attention away from the project because you had other bigger fish to fry as an organization. And then you had to the fact that you had a, a CIO that was in my opinion, overly way too overly dependent on the system integrator to just handle the implementation because they were having trouble managing the implementation themselves internally. So they sort of delegated even more to the system integrator and the system integrator just sort of run ran amok with the budget and with the pre with the plan and there was no accountability there. They did really well. They made a lot of money on the project, but it didn't end up being successful. So it was just one of those, uh, that's probably the one that I was actively involved with, especially at a point in my career where I was doing a lot more hands-on consulting. I was leading a lot of the change management initiatives within that, which was difficult because the, it was a moving target of evolving business requirements and executive turnover. And so you're trying to navigate the change management side of things when you've got a, a backdrop of other messier issues to deal with. Yeah, that definitely sounds like it would be a complex change management strategy when they they didn't seem like they were really ready for that change as an organization. And that's one of the 
the um, pieces that you touch on in that failures video is talking about relying too much on a partner, whether it's a vendor or an SI or those types of things. And we've seen our clients come to us lately and they have said that even when they try and split from their SI, when it comes to things like custom integrations or specific assets that were built for them, that they've had trouble with ownership around who that actually belongs to, which obviously is a critical piece to the project. So that's kind of been something that we've seen as as a newer trend in the overall just over integrity or the lack thereof of the industry. And I, I wonder if you could kind of talk to that a little bit to ensure that that you are protected in those situations where you have an outside entity derailing your project. Yeah, I'd say the the big takeaway or the big lesson or advice I would give is that, you know, this is your project. If you're an internal organization going through a transformation, it's your project. It's not the consultant's project. It's not the software vendor or the system integrator. So you really have to take ownership and have the confidence to make the decisions you need to make. And it's it's really interesting that so many organizations are afraid to make hard decisions around getting rid of a system integrator or cutting scope or telling the system integrator, no, we're not going to do a big bang in a compressed timeline. We're going to spread this out over time. And by the way, you need to throttle back your staffing of this project because we're not going to pay for you to overstaff it in the, you know, in the spirit of trying to do it faster. We're going to tell you to slow down at a lower run rate. It's interesting how organizations have trouble pushing back. And I think a lot of it is, you know, sort of a lack of confidence. And it's also the fact that the system integrators are really good at convincing you that they, they're right. And they've got the right answer. So that's why it's so important to have that technology agnostic advisor with you that can help you see those things more clearly, help you push back, help you build the confidence to to make those kinds of decisions. They're going to benefit you and serve you better as an organization rather than deferring to a software vendor and a system integrator that have a lot of money at stake and they have a lot of money to make by you doing things that are not necessarily in your best interest. So that's that's the tricky part. And I think that's why so many organizations struggle with that. Absolutely. Well, this is all great content. And just as a reminder, these are actually pulled from Eric's YouTube channel. So if you head over to Eric's channel or the third stage channel, you're able to see all things digital transformation failures, red flags to failures. We talk a lot about that because it is so prevalent in the marketplace. I also highly recommend you download our newly released 2023 digital transformation reports. That also covers some main red flags for failures, as well as is a great follow-up to Eric's organizational change Q&A. So definitely some follow-up factors there. And then as we all learned last week from Clifford Martin, who did our keynote at our digital stratosphere EMEA, talking about the role executives play in failure, that executive boot camp is pivotal to understanding how you can get in front of this as a leader. So again, you're not going through not only operational disruption, but a huge kind of black stain on your brand, um, whether it was your fault or somebody else's fault. That's a, a, a real big risk. So thank you so much, Eric, for all of that great information. We so appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for the, the kind words there and for pointing people in the direction of that content too. Um, we're putting out new videos on both channels, both my personal channel as well as the third stage channel. We put out multiple videos each week, multiple live streams and podcasts each week. So be sure to subscribe and check it out on YouTube if you're not already on there uh, checking us out there. So 
I want to thank you, Kyler, for a, for a great episode, as always, and to the audience for the great questions and interaction. Um, you can find new episodes of the show every Wednesday on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter, as well as Spotify, Google, Amazon, and all the podcast platforms out there. Be sure to subscribe to us and check us out. And also, we've got 90 other episodes you may not have seen yet, or maybe there's a few in there that you haven't seen that you want to see. So be sure to go back and check out some of the timeless episodes that we put out um, every week. So thank you for joining everyone. I hope you have a great week and we'll see you next time on Transformation Ground Control. This is kind of weird because I'm like transitioning myself. So let me think this through. Welcome back to Digital Transformation. Oh, okay. Okay, here's the transition, Cassie. I'm so nervous. I never get nervous. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Great questions. Um, you can continue. Oops, sorry. No, that's right. I think she can edit out the that middle part. The miss. Yeah, the, the miss. Well, she edits cute. way worse on on what I do on camera, so I'm sure. Yeah, I know. That should be easy for her. <laughs> uh, no, you could keep doing it because I talk a lot in this episode. This is going to be like 95% okay. cool. Yeah. Well, it's what the people want. We are here with Eric, I almost said Eric Cheatham because I heard your voice in my head. <laughs> Sorry, let me take it again. That's fine.